Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. This is Pat Salber with the American Journal of Managed Care for our monthly podcast. And uh, we're going to have a really exciting conversation today uh, because we're going to talk about what the implications of the November surprise, and by that I mean the election of Donald Trump and the Republican dominance of the House and Senate, are going to mean for healthcare going forward. My guest today is the perfect person to have this conversation with. It's Joseph Antos, who's the Wilson H. Uh, Taylor Scholar in Healthcare and Retirement Policy at the American Enterprise Institute. And his work there focuses on the economics of health policy. Before that, he was Assistant Director for Health and Human Resources at the Congressional Budget Office, and I'm sure he'll bring some of that perspective to our conversation today. And he's also had senior positions in the Department of Health and Human Services, the Office of Management and Budget, and the President's Council of Economic Advisors. So quite a background. Welcome, Joe. Uh, Thank you very much, Pat. It's great to be here. Fantastic. So let's dive in. There's so much to talk about. Um, The first thing I thought we should start with is repeal and replace. Uh, This was part of the um, campaign rhetoric, for sure. And it now looks like, from what I read, the plan is to repeal either on day one or at least in the first 100 days. But I'm not quite clear what's, what's up with the replacement. So maybe you can shed some light on that for us. I wish I could. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, so uh, you're right. The, uh, the new president ran on a, well, certainly the repeal part of uh, of uh, repeal and replace, uh, and so Republicans are under considerable pressure to pass some sort of a bill uh, that repeals uh, the Affordable Care Act. I'm going to refer to it as the ACA. Uh, I, I prefer a more neutral uh, term here, um, uh, but uh, repeal doesn't mean necessarily an immediate repeal, doesn't necessarily mean repealing everything. We need to discuss what it could mean. Uh, and replace, of course, there are there are lots of possibilities there too, in, in addition to uh, what would change, but also when would it change. Um, uh, with regard to uh, a, an immediate repeal, I think there was a, 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 an hallucinatory uh, period uh, here in Washington for a while with some Republicans imagining that there would be uh, a repeal bill uh, ready to be signed, uh, well, let's say the day after Donald Trump is sworn in as president. That's, that's not likely to be the case. It's, it's much more complicated than that. But certainly a repeal bill that repeals certain aspects of the ACA uh, is, is feasible within uh, a, a few months. And so I want to stop you here for a second, Joe, and ask you, I know that um, President-elect Trump has said that he wants to preserve certain very popular aspects of the ACA, and one of them is the ban on not having pre-existing conditions and the extension of coverage to kids up to age 26. But 
can he really do that and still end up with a with an ACA or, or, or whatever that makes financial sense? Or do all the pieces have to be in place in order to work? Well, it, it, lots, of, lots of other things would have to change, but certainly, you know, you're right. Guaranteed issue and the under 26 provision is, is very popular. Uh, it's not surprising. We're not going to go back to the days before the ACA when, when insurance companies could reject uh, uh, applicants for insurance or could restrict the kind of coverage they, they could get based on their health condition. Uh, but uh, as, you, as you indicate, the, the big challenge is how do you make that work? How do you make guaranteed issue work uh, um, given that insurance companies have to be able to make some money on this business? It has to be a viable business. Um, uh, and the under 26 is a, uh, that is a particularly troubling uh, giveaway to the middle class uh, from that standpoint. Uh, there, was, there was absolutely no reason to say that the healthiest people in, in America uh, can stay on their parents' plan rather than joining the exchange plans, which were supposed to offer affordable coverage. That was, that was done as a sop to the middle class. By, by the Democrats, and in fact, it has pretty much backfired. You really would like to have those people uh, sign on to the exchange plans, and, and obviously they're not doing it. So, so that's, that is a big problem. Um, but let me first address what, what repeal could actually mean, because we don't want people to think that repeal means that any of these provisions are going to be repealed right away. <clears throat> Some of them could be, maybe not. Uh, the the um, uh, idea of uh, the insurance mandate in particular is a big issue among uh, Republicans. And some Republicans um, believe that the insurance mandate should be repealed immediately. Uh, but they would retain the subsidy, they would retain guaranteed issue, they would retain under 26, they would retain almost everything else. But for some reason, they believe that the mandate should be immediately uh, repealed. That's a bad and, and idea. And so I have to stop you again, because, because what are they thinking? If you repeal the mandate, and, and you probably know better than I how many people have ended up getting insurance who wouldn't have had the mandate not existed, but as you repeal the mandate and you start to decrease the pool, I'm back to puzzling over, you know, to, to meet what you said, the insurance companies need to be able to make money on this. How is that going to work? Because I assume repealing the mandate means that even more people will start peeling out of the pool. Right, exactly. So knowledgeable Republicans recognize this fact. Uh, and they, they recognize that it's a bad idea to repeal the mandate. By the way, regardless of whether the mandate did anything at all, I, I agree that, that there, are, there are people who definitely would not have signed on for insurance, except that somebody told them they had to and it wasn't their mother. Uh, uh, it was somebody who wanted money. <laughs> you no, have to no, pay no, money no, no. It's the government. No, 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 no. The insurance company didn't mandate insurance. Not at all. It's the government. The government mandated insurance. Oh, right, right, right. No I, no, I know that. But I'm just saying that it, it wasn't just that the government said you needed to get insurance. They said you need to get insurance or you're going to have to pay a price. 
Well, that's misleading. Uh, let's think about, as long as you're bringing it up, I might as well tell you what I think about it. Uh, and that's what we want. The penalty, the penalty basically didn't work. Uh, we have plenty of proof of that. First of all, it couldn't have worked uh, for the first plan year, 2014. And the reason is simple. People do not know that there's a penalty unless they know somebody was penalized. And no one was penalized uh, in the first plan year in 2014. They couldn't have been. So, in fact, it's a, a lot like little Johnny takes his crayon. He draws on the wall. And mom notices this a week later and slaps him on the wrist and says, don't do that again. But little Johnny doesn't quite know what, was he, what, he, what wasn't he supposed to do. The reality is that that, uh, that was a very clumsy, a very weak mandate, and it fundamentally didn't work, which is one of the reasons contributing to the dropout of uh, uh, major insurers uh, from many of the exchange markets. Uh, basically, they, they didn't get a, a fair risk pool, and it's precisely because the mandate was not effective. What was effective was the subsidy encouraging people who had active health conditions to sign up. And, and you know, it's not hard to convince somebody who, who has illnesses uh, to sign up for subsidized insurance. It's much harder to sign up for uh, a 27-year-old guy who's gonna live forever, is never gonna have an accident, and has a bar bill. Uh, that's, that's a really tough call. So, 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 so Joe, do you think that the mandate could have worked if it had been shaped differently, perhaps been, you know, a bigger penalty? Or, or, or do you think that, that the idea of a mandate is just not, has no way that it can be effective? Well, if, if the mandate had to be run through the government, it was not going to work because there was always going to be this lag. The only mechanism that the, that the government has is, is through the tax system, through, through the income tax system. And so this is a very clumsy and very slow-moving uh, way to uh, Im impose a penalty on people. There are, there are other ways that uh, I, would, I wouldn't call it a mandate, but there are other ways to impose a system of penalties and rewards. You need rewards, too, in order to get people to do the right thing. In fact, let me, let me lay out my favorite, my favorite method, which... Uh, uh, I don't believe anybody's uh, thinking about it right now, but who knows? You know, in a few, few years, maybe. Um, so, well, they'll hear it here uh, first. Possibly. So, so <laughs> as, far as, as far as penalties are concerned, um, uh, the uh, what would you, you would go to insurance companies? You would go back to what they know how to do best, which is they can charge people who haven't signed up for coverage and should have signed up for coverage, if they didn't have a good excuse, if they weren't exempted for some reason, then they should be charged the fair actuarial rate, which is gonna be more expensive than the, than the, commu the community rating. Uh, and they should be charged for five years, and people should know that. Uh, now, what about that 27-year-old guy who's uh, got a bar bill and is gonna live forever? Well. That's somebody who needs a positive reward. You know, you need to penalize people for not signing up, but you need to reward people for doing the right thing. 
And so I think a sensible thing to do as part of this scheme is to say, okay, if you sign up for coverage, you're going to have a signing bonus. So this really applies mostly to people who are brand new to this market and that they're going to be typically the younger people. And the signing bonus would be something like the following, that over the course of five years, the government will contribute to a health savings account, which you can use to buy insurance, you can use for other medical expenses. If you have purchased insurance and you've remained insured for the five years and you continue to remain insured, then over the next five years, you can use the funds that are in there which are probably going to be most of them for the healthy young, young person, you can use those funds for other appropriate purposes, such as paying down your college bills, for example, your loans, education loans, that sort of thing. Not your bar bill, but the kinds of, things, kinds of activities that we want to encourage that cost money. Why don't we, why don't we do it that way? We get, we get, that's a twofer, because that's a, that would be a substantial incentive, I believe, for young people who are coming out of college, uh, who have uh, education loans, uh, to do what they should do anyway, which is to buy insurance. And then once, once you're in insurance, you get the idea that, yeah, that was actually a good idea after all. And it also helps that people tend to stay wherever you put them. So if, they, if you can get them into the insurance system to begin with, they're likely to stay there because it's easier to stay than it is to move out. And eventually, thinking again about guys, I was, I was a 27-year-old guy once myself. Eventually, wisdom descends upon even, even young men. <laughs> they grow older. <laughs> they grow older. So, and they, they begin to appreciate the, the, the sense of health insurance. Absolutely. Right. So, so I have a, a quick question, and then I want to talk a little bit about, uh, about Medicaid. Uh, but my quick question is, do we really have to repeal uh, Obamacare, or can't we do what we should have started doing years ago, which is to tweak it? So if the existing mandate doesn't make sense, is it, do you really have to repeal the whole thing to be able to implement or do a pilot uh, of some sort and, and, and try out, for example, your idea about penalties and rewards? Right. So as a political matter, Republicans have to have a repeal bill. There's no question about that. However, again, it depends on what repeal means and it depends on what replace means. If you look at the Republican proposals that we've seen over the last uh, uh, you know, four, four to six years, uh, they have the same characteristic. The first line says repeal and then the rest of it really is the sort of thing that you're talking about where they're proposing what are essentially changes to uh, the subsidies or changes to the way the insurance uh, rules work or other kinds of changes that um, we, can, we can argue about whether all those changes are sensible, but they are an attempt to build on the structure that is there and, and, and by now is, is really quite ingrained in the insurance system that those structures are really not gonna go away very soon. And, and also a key thing is that every Republican proposal that we have seen over, over that period of time has retained a guaranteed issue and has retained the under 26 provision. Again, that, that to me 
uh, was a mistake to begin with, but it's not going away and, and neither is guaranteed issues. So absolutely, uh, if people just get over the, the, the language and, re and look at what is really going on, what they will see, if there is a sensible replace bill, and that's the if, uh, what they will see is the kinds of changes that we needed to make all along and some other changes that may be more controversial to, to the strongest supporters of the ACA. But I think they will see that, that uh, even those changes, if they occur, are not intended to destroy health insurance for anyone, not intended to disenfranchise the poor from getting access to good care. And I think that's very important. There is goodwill there in spite of the bad language that we hear from, frankly, both parties. Yeah, well, you know, that's good to hear. And, and I have to say that I have been joking with my friends that um, we're going to repeal Obamacare and replace it with Trump care, and it's going to look like Obamacare. So, uh, so we'll see. But I wanted to move on from that and ask you a little bit. This is also a part of the ACA, and that is the Medicaid expansion. We, we know that uh, 19 states didn't expand and that there are people who are stuck in the coverage gap. What do you think is going to happen to Medicaid, number one, under the repeal and replace scenario, but number two, under the guidance of um, Seema Verma, who uh, has been involved in, um, in creating new approaches to Medicaid in a number of, in a number of states across the country? Right. So, so um, uh, it's, you know, once a, a subsidy has been granted, it's very difficult for politicians to take it away. Uh, their history really on, on all sorts of issues that involve spending taxpayer monies is not to, not to take away a benefit, but actually to add it, to expand it, and so on. And I, I think we're gonna see something similar here. <clears throat> um, it will still be up to the states to decide what they wanna do. Um, I fully expect that CMS uh, under Seema Verma uh, will um, be uh, more reasonable uh, in terms of working with the states and giving them waivers to uh, shape their Medicaid programs in ways that, that are a bit more market-oriented. Of course, we're talking about low-income people, so there are, there are limits to everything. But uh, anyone who looks at Healthy Indiana for example, we'll see that uh, there is a work search requirement uh, for able-bodied people. Obviously, if you're not able-bodied, you can't, you can't do that. But if you're able-bodied, you should look for work. Um, there's an idea that um, above uh, certain income levels that you might be expected to uh, contribute to the cost of the program somewhat. Uh, perhaps through uh, a little higher cost sharing than is now required uh, in most states, uh, that, that sort of thing. So I would expect to see those kinds of changes, uh, not wholesale uh, changes, but those kinds of changes through the, through the waiver process. And I think that uh, many of the states that have not so far signed on will in fact take this as an opportunity to frankly get some more money for their states and for their providers uh, 
uh, with with the ability to say that uh, their expansion is moving in a more market oriented way. I think you you need you need that cover, and 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 they're sincere about that. Now, what I well, think- I hope so because I, I I'll tell you my concern, um, and I I like what you're saying, and I hope that by in a sense, changing the politics, and you use the word have some cover, will allow people to do the expansion because it really has made a difference in terms of the number of people insured. My concern about kind of block granting it is um, that there are states that are consistently at the bottom of the heap in terms of what they're doing uh, for, in healthcare for their uh, poor people. And, and, I, and I worry that under that cover, um, that that could get worse. Do you do you think oh, that there'll okay, be so protections a, for that? That's a separate issue. That is not something you can do by waiver. That requires legislation. And let's not call it a block grant because nobody is ever talking about a block grant. What they're talking about is uh, to put a uh, cap on the uh, per capita amount uh, that could be could be varied and, and I think would be varied. Uh, I mean, this is this is one a very old idea. It's been around for for decades. But the ba- but the basic idea is to to give uh, the states a fixed amount of money for each beneficiary. But that fixed amount would vary depending on uh, the health needs uh, of of the beneficiary. I mean, obviously there there are a fair number of people in Medicaid who are really not. They don't have any special illnesses. They're just like everybody else, except they're poor. But there are other people in Medicaid who clearly have huge health needs, you know, even, even uh, among those people who are not in uh, long-term care or, uh, you know, uh, dual eligibles in the Medicare, uh, Medicaid program, uh, but just people who, who just need very expensive health care. So you, you, need to, you need to make some adjustments there. This, however, is a matter of legislation. And the issue is, uh, would governors uh, want to take the financial risk of moving from a current, the current system, which is essentially, essentially an unrestricted grant, matching grant that ties to the money that they spend to provide services and administrative uh, administrative costs in the Medicaid in the Medicaid program. Um, I don't think you'll find very many governors, Republican or Democrat, who will be very eager to take on that risk unless there were other changes that made it possible for them to run their programs uh, in a more effective uh, and cost-efficient way. And I think even then, they're going to be looking for more money because that's just the way it works. So I think it's it's uh, it's a long shot to think about that kind of Medicaid reform, and I can guarantee you that uh, dealing with the exchange part, the private insurance, the uh, part of the ACA, that's where the focus is. Uh, Medicaid reform and Medicare reform is are both f- much further down the list. Uh, uh, and it's also completely clear that Republicans are already pushing to get input from states about what they want to see. So I expect that most states are going to raise this issue, are going to raise this concern. Uh, uh, certainly the Ways and Means sent out letters last week to every state asking for their input. 
they're going to get that input. And I don't think we would be surprised at, at the kind of response they're going to get. And it will be, uh, sure, we want to see reforms, uh, but we're worried about where the money is going to come from. And we want to make sure that we can provide an appropriate level of care. And that's true for the states that you don't like. And it's true for the states you do like. They all are going to have the same orientation. They're worried about money. Right. And this is, uh, you know, this is a much longer conversation. The, the, the problem with escalating health care costs, which are part of the driver of all the problems that we have now, that will have to be uh, hopefully another conversation um, because we've, uh, we've really run out of time here. And I think we covered a lot, but I would like to propose to you that I'd love to have you come back and chat with us at some point in the future about um, the proposal to change Medicare from its existing um, structure to uh, premium support, because I think we could have some really rich conversation about that as well. I'd be delighted to come back, but I wouldn't hold my breath that we're going to see much movement on that anytime soon. <laughs> okay, That's well, I can breathe a sigh of relief. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to thank you very much, Joe. This was really a fascinating conversation. And uh, actually, I, I, I'm, I'm feeling better about things than I did before we, uh, before we had this chat. So thank you very much. Thank you, Pat.